Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome, welcome to our Sunday morning gathering. Again, whether you're joining us on live stream and are happening to be able to do that, or whether you're in uh, the room. So uh, recently was visiting with some newer folks uh, about their impression uh, of First City Church. I was actually doing this last night. And one of the things they said is, you know, you guys, you guys don't have pews. Uh, you guys don't have stained glass windows. But it does have this really nice first century feel. <laughs> so, so this morning, we are taking that first century feel to another level uh, as we gather without lights and electricity. Uh, but we do have running water, just so you all know. So it was, actually, it was actually a year ago that COVID uh, kicked us out of our regular gathering place. And we say that church is a people and not a place. And I'm in awe of how this church lives that out. This community is not bound by our production value. We are bound by the blood of Christ. And so we don't need the lights. We have not needed a regular gathering place. We do not need electricity to worship our Savior. So thanks for being that type of people. And thanks in particular to our production team and Renee White for, make, for, for pivoting and making a morning like this morning happen. So if you hang around First City Church long enough, if you do not get afraid of our mess... One of the events that you will hear about, or maybe better hyped about, is something called Pastor Paul's Picnic. Every fall, we invite those who have come into the church in the last year over to the Gardner home to enjoy a feast, what some call the best smoked meat they have ever eaten. It's so good, it is referred to as Pastor Paul's perfect pulled pork. There's a bit of a contest in the congregation in trying to capture how amazing the meat is to see if there are other P words that could be added. Pleasant, palatable, peppery, polished. I think someone used pungent. I don't even know what that word means. So, so this morning we're considering how God's word speaks to relationships that children and parents have with one another. While I would love to invite you into Pastor Paul's perfect parenting principles, I don't have those to offer. My wife, Michelle, and I and our kids have been on a steep learning curve almost two decades since our oldest daughter entered our lives. I can identify with a pastor like Paul Tripp, who in talking about parenting has said, it seemed as if I'd been given an impossible job to do. I'd been chosen to be the dad of four children. See, I don't have four children. I have five. But parenting often seems like an impossible job to do. I have much to ask my kids forgiveness for and still much to learn. 
Now, the reason we're talking about parenting this morning is because we've been exploring a sermon series called Relationships Reformed, reflecting on the third chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. The chapter began discussing general dynamics that apply to all ways Christians connect with others. But last week, it shifted to focus on specific types of relationships. And the specific type addressed in the text we're examining this morning is the relationships children and parents have with one another. As Paul addresses this specific group, or any group for that matter, we may have a tendency to check out if we do not identify with it. But here's what Paul's doing. In speaking to children and parents in the context of the larger congregation, the larger church, Paul desires all in the church to know and understand how children and parents relate to one another in a family. Because what goes on in a family doesn't simply affect that family. It affects the whole church. So parents, when you think of the challenges and dysfunction in your home as a private matter, there is no such thing. In church, you are not excused from considering and reflecting how children and parents relate to one another in homes you do not live in. This involvement from the congregation often plays out in beautiful ways. My wife, Michelle, and I, we are so grateful for other adults who fill our gaps and deficits. This is the way a church is supposed to function as a larger family, not individual silos of families. Other adults step in, sometimes grandparents, sometimes adults that do not have children, sometimes parents of other children, and they support parents and children as they live in relationship with one another. But sometimes this can play out in not such good ways. Maybe kids are labeled without getting to know them, and adults judge their motivations and their hearts. As broken people, maybe we come alongside parents in broken ways. So if you do not have children in your home, Paul is not excluding you from hearing and applying God's word this morning. In light of that, let's all see what God's word teaches how children and parents are to relate to one another. For, for those that have a Bible or Bible app, open up to Colossians 3, verses 20 and 21. If you ha- happen to be in the auditorium this morning and you don't have a Bible, you can help yourself to one at our welcome table. You're welcome to keep it. Here's what, God words, here's what God's word says. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. The the passage is addressing children and parents within the context of a family and is speaking to common struggles, ways those relationships may need to be reformed by the gospel. So to understand what the text is saying, we're, we're going to explore how it addresses children first, and parents second. Simple outline. So let's start with children. 
Paul assumes, he makes the assumption that children are present within the congregation for the hearing and teaching of God's word. That children will be sitting among adults during the gathered worship of God's people. So he might struggle with how many churches today separate youth from the larger gathering, implying that corporate worship is for adults and kids don't need to be a part of that. In singling out children in the same way Paul singles out other groups of people in his letters, like husbands, wives, fathers, slaves, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, Paul is declaring there is a way that children choose to live that impacts and influences the health of a church and its witness to the outside world. Children, children, I want you to look at me for a minute. Paul is saying the word of God is for you, not only for adults. You have much to learn from God's word. Children, he is saying you are valued members of a church. You have choices in how you behave and live that affects far more than you or even your family. How you live influences the health of your church. The Apostle Paul's instruction to you is obey your parents. And he adds in everything. Now, because Paul has in mind Christian homes living out what it means to please and honor the Lord, Paul is not saying if a parent's direction contradicts the Lord's, if a father were to tell a child, lie to your mother, don't tell her what I did or something more sinister, obey your parent, obedience to the Lord and his commands overrides obedience to that parent. In saying obey parents and everything, what Paul is saying, don't just obey sometimes. Don't just obey when you feel like it. When a parent says, eat your broccoli, and you're in the mood to eat your broccoli. He isn't telling you to obey parents in some areas of your life, like what you eat or what you wear. He is talking about a holistic Obedience involving every area of life. When you go to bed at night, what you eat during mealtimes, what types of snacks you have, how much time you spend doing schoolwork, the type of schoolwork you do, who you spend time with, what you are allowed to do during free time, how you participate in the life of the church, attending Sunday morning gatherings. It's a comprehensive obedience that includes all areas of life. So, why do you obey? Maybe mom or dad says, take out the trash. Or, you need to eat that salad. Or, you can only have one cookie. Or, you're going to church with us this morning. Why do you obey? Paul says, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. This means a child obeying a mom or dad is how God designed a family to function. But when sin rules and reigns in the heart of a child, he or she struggles to obey. So, when you're out of your parents' sight, 
when you're at school or when you're at practice or when you have access to technology and social media and a parent expects you to obey and act a certain way, to avoid particular activities, when sin reigns, you don't. You don't obey. In disobeying, in rejecting a parent's instruction, in arguing with mom or dad, the thing that matters is not pleasing the Lord. The thing that ultimately matters is what you want and desire. You disobey and argue because you are consumed with self and your glory. That word glory, it's a big word. It means your magnificence or your importance You see yourself as most important, and so you don't want to give glory to your God. So the Gospel of Luke tells us about a time during the boyhood of Jesus when his family had traveled to Jerusalem. Maybe he was eight or nine. Thank you for electricity, Lord. All right, so the Gospel of Luke tells us about a time during the boyhood of Jesus when his family had traveled to Jerusalem. Maybe he was eight or nine or 10 or 11, and he stayed behind unknowingly to his parents and sat among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. When his parents return and they find him, the author of Luke says this, then he, Jesus, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. He kept all, his mother kept all these things in her heart. Children, when Jesus was a child, he obeyed his earthly parents. Now, sometimes we think we, we obey parents because they are smarter or because they are stronger or because they are more important, more glorious, if you will. Or maybe because they have less sin than us. None of these reasons explain why Jesus obeyed. Jesus was smarter. Jesus was stronger. He was sinless. And he was more glorious and far more important than his parents. Yet he obeyed. As you read and learn about Jesus, one thing you see, he wasn't seeking his own glory. He longed to glorify his heavenly father. And one way for him to glorify his heavenly father was to obey his earthly mom and dad. Because this is how an earthly family is designed. This is what is pleasing to the Lord. This is what righteousness and holiness and maturity looks like. Children, apart from Christ, at worst, your desires will tell you to reject obedience. And at best, apart from Christ, your desires could tell you to obey your parents, to please them, and to do it in a way that you receive praises and you get some glory. When you understand the gospel, in choosing to obey, you are choosing to surrender. You surrender your wants and desires. You are doing something pleasing to the Lord. And it is an act of worship. You are giving glory to your God. You are testifying to how the gospel is what matters to you. Paul is saying, children, you have choices to make. 
And your choices can either hinder the congregation or help the congregation. Your choices can damage you and show others what it means to live for you, or they can help display Christ to others and show how God's people live in relation to him. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Now let's turn our attention to fathers. So while Paul's instruction to children focuses on how they interact with the authority structure of a family, choosing obedience, his instruction to fathers focuses on how authority is to be exercised, even restrained. His instruction is less focused on what a father does and more how he does it. And how he does it will help to avoid a particular outcome in the life of a child. This is what Paul says. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Exasperate means to provoke, to annoy, or to anger. Paul is saying there are ways that fathers can exercise authority that stirs up the heart of a child to cause them to be discouraged or bitter or angry. Paul singles out fathers, and we're going to talk about some reasons that's important. But before we do, let's acknowledge that raising kids is a shared responsibility. In some families, a mother bears all parental responsibility. As such, pastors and commentaries affirm it is valid and wise to apply Paul's instruction here to both mothers and fathers. As Pastor Chris reminded us last week, it is not good for man to be alone. A mother and father raising a child, exercising authority over that child, are not to exasperate so the child won't become discouraged. And so Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases this verse, Parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. Now, one of the likely reasons Paul singles out fathers is because in Greco-Roman culture, the culture of the Colossians, fathers had ultimate authority over children. And children were often treated as second-class citizens. They didn't have rights. Their fathers would often send them out to work in the fields at a very young age. They were sometimes sold into slavery. Fathers were prone to treat children like personal property. While we do not sell children into slavery today, treating kids like personal property is something that still happens. In singling out fathers, Paul is also affirming the role that a father plays in the life of a child. Scripture teaches a father leading his children is so important that it is one of the qualifications for an elder in the church. When a man does not manage his home, when his children are not submissive, he should not be a pastor. Many passages of Scripture tell us when a father does not lead his children, sin and destruction reign. There are stories of children like Absalom. This is King David's son. And in the absence of strong leadership from his father, he grows up to dethrone him as king as he fights for power and affirmation and worth. 
Scripture emphasizes the significant role that a father plays in the life of a, of a child, and sociologists do too. According to the latest U.S. Census Bureau data, one in four children live without a biological step or adoptive father in the home. Those children are at greater risk to live in poverty, to become pregnant as a teen, to commit a crime, to abuse drugs or alcohol, to go to prison, or to drop out of high school. You see, in carrying the name father, an earthly father uniquely points to the character of an eternal father. And when that earthly father lives in light of the gospel and God's word, he more clearly images and reflects and reveals who God is. When an earthly father does not live in light of the gospel and God's word, he is prone to distort and damage how God is perceived and known. And by the way, church, the significance a father has in the life of a child underscores what a single mom has to do and how we as a church need to better support them. They have gaps and deficits to make up for absent dads. You see how a father exercises authority. It is a kind of gospel proclamation, declaring who God is to his children, to the church, and to the broader culture. A father exasperating or provoking a child, a parent causing a child to become discouraged, distorts and damages others' view of God. Let's consider some ways that could happen. So I have four, but but I do not intend for this to be comprehensive. There could be many others. So first one, talking with words of condemnation rather than kindness. The Gospel of John tells us, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The book of Romans declares there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When referring to how God's people relate to God, the author of Romans also says, Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, patience, not recognizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Too often, rather than kindness, rather than exhibiting patience or restraint, When a child sins or when a child makes a mistake, a parent responds with condemnation. Harsh harsh words are directed towards a child. The parent is not approachable as they look at a child in disappointment and disgust. Nitpicking, nagging, micromanaging, not noticing accomplishments while consistently noting failures Condemnation can be spoken with literal words, but it can also be spoken when we withhold love and affection and praise. It can be communicated through how we deliver consequences, using God's word to primarily condemn character and actions, and sometimes to support our preferences and personal convictions. And condemnation can be communicated through how we respond when a child is afraid or sad or distressed, or even mad. This type of parenting raises children to believe they need to behave a certain way to receive and earn love and affirmation. A child raised in this type of home will be prone to grow up to be a Pharisee, 
emphasizing outward actions as he or she interacts with others, interacts with the church, and interacts with their God. They believe they need to hide and deny weakness. See, our our Heavenly Father is kind to us when we sin. He is approachable when we are distraught and distressed. He pursues us when we reject and run from him. Rather than condemnation, a child needs to receive kindness. They need to be affirmed. They need to be encouraged when they confess sin and and when they share struggles. Listen to Matt Chandler and Adam, Adam Griffin in their book, Family Discipleship. Children should not need to obey to earn your love or to receive your affirmation. We should love our children better than they deserve. We should delight in our children when they are not worth delighting in or have not met our standards. Emphasizing condemnation rather than kindness is one way to provoke children. A second is thinking of a child as a burden and not a blessing. God's word teaches us children are a blessing from the Lord in the midst of his mission on earth to save sinners. Uh, Steve read this in the call to worship. Jesus took time out for kids. He wasn't too busy on that mission. His words, let the children come to me, affirm how our God delights in kids. Now, I don't know any parent that would say his or her child is a burden. The parent that I have in mind here is a preoccupied parent, maybe preoccupied physically with work activities or escaping to hobbies or entertainment, watching sports, excessively engaging social media. Maybe the parent is not preoccupied physically, but they are preoccupied mentally, preoccupied with work matters, or family matters, or personal pain, even church matters. One of my fears as a pastor, kids of pastors often grow up in homes where mom and dad are preoccupied mentally with ministry. When a parent is preoccupied, they fail to attune to the heart of a child. They miss when that child is happy or sad, or needs help, and they lack emotional and spiritual presence. So the child comes to believe that they are a burden, not a blessing. And so that child comes to think that they were designed to live in isolation, to do life alone, and they don't deserve to be known. A church that views children as a blessing has many adults looking and seeking to build relationships with children, young children, middle-aged children, and older children. So one of the statistics we talk about as we think about what we want for youth at First City is studies demonstrating that youth who do not leave the church have four meaningful relationships with adults who are not their parents. Too often, this does not happen in the church. Adults in the church are preoccupied with their nuclear family or their personal mission. And so as we open up the doors, like we did last week, of First City Kids, 
As we talk about opportunities to connect with First City students, we want to be a church that turns adults away because we so much value the children of our church. As a child interacts with older adults, we want them to know how precious and delightful each is. Children are a blessing, so when they hurt, we want to enter into that moment with them. When they share temptations, we don't tell them just to toughen up. Like our Savior does, we sympathize. When they accomplish something, we don't just move on to the next thing. We rejoice and celebrate. Interacting with a child as though he or she is a burden is a second way to discourage. A third is training a child in worldly ways rather than biblical ones. So much much of what we've been learning about how the gospel reforms relationships, in addition to being explained in Colossians 3, is explained in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the verse addressing fathers in Ephesians 6, he says, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So we tend to think of a parent getting angry. That's what stirs up or provokes a child and crushes that child's spirit. What Paul is saying here, what stirs up anger is a deficiency to train and instruct children in the ways of the Lord. So so training means a child learns from the actions of a parent what it means to love Christ and be part of his church and to live on his mission. Instruction means engaging scripture, talking about the gospel, explaining to children the character of God. Parents who have their hearts captured by Christ, they teach their kids about him. They teach their kids what it means to surrender everything to him. Parents, we need to be aware of things that compete with Christ to capture our heart. See, there's a way many parents talk about biblical priorities. They talk about the importance of worshiping God and being with his people. They talk about virtues of sacrifice and service and generosity, but they do not uphold them in their personal lives. This can be as simple as a parent who tells a child to not get drunk, but is prone to getting drunk. Or a parent who tells a child to not lust after a man or woman, yet that is certainly taking place with the entertainment choices on display in the home. This can be a family that fills their time together with Netflix or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime while time in the Word of God is deficient. They participate in youth sports. They gather with friends. They are with extended family, but they neglect attending worship together. They do not seek out opportunities to serve and sacrifice for brothers and sisters in Christ. They talk about how Jesus has forgiven their sin. But, but that is a tagline to serve self. Parents, what else other than Christ is capturing your heart? Your kids see this, and it causes confusion and exasperation. It will lead a child to become discouraged. Paul says to avoid angering a child, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So the last way I'll mention how a parent could discourage a child is trying to fit a child into a mold. In Psalm 139, as King David interacts with God, he says, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. So, so one way we try to fit a child into a mold is missing how each child has uniquely been remarkably and wondrously made by their Heavenly Father. To not provoke or exacerbate, a parent needs to know individual children. What shames them? What celebrates them? What sin struggles and temptations are more specific to them? So when my son sins, I do not parent him the same way I parent a daughter. When my adopted daughter is sad, I don't parent her the same way I parent my other daughters. As my kids grow, I do not parent them the same way at each stage of childhood, even though my parenting does need to adapt based on age. Of course, there are some similarities. All of them should be raised in the training and instruction of the Lord. All of them should be taught to obey parents in everything. Foundational principles do not change, but how those principles are exercised will vary child to child. To best love and to respect, to effectively instruct and challenge and exhort, techniques and strategies need to be adapted and modified. Fathers, parents, do not exasperate your children. Refrain from words of condemnation. Raise your children to know they are a blessing. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord and avoid trying to fit them into a mold so they won't become discouraged. As we conclude, the thing we're after here is not a home that is proper. It's not a home where children grow up to experience earthly success. It's not a home where children are well-behaved and grow up to respect their mother, yes, ma'am, and their father, no, sir. While these things may happen, the goal of our parenting is not morals. We are after glorifying Christ. Jonathan Edwards has said, every Christian family ought to be a little church consecrated to God, consecrated to Christ and wholly influenced and governed by his laws. If this is true, if every Christian family is a little church, the gospel of grace should be on display. A church is filled with imperfect people who struggle with sin and doubt and who are growing into the image of Christ. A church is not filled with perfect people or perfect parents or perfectly clean children, but rather a people who are being perfected and a people who are being made clean. A mature family is a family that chooses to repent. A mature family is one that chooses to forgive. So, so this week, this week I'm talking on parenting. Michelle and I go on a walk with our kids. And on this walk, we get into a bit of a conflict. Michelle would call it a discussion. We ended up sitting on our porch while our kids played in the front yard. And eventually one of them walked over and offered, you know, we've had a pretty good childhood, but one thing that hasn't been good, and she proceeded to explain ways that we have discouraged our children. 
On the week I'm preaching about parenting, (laughs) this child offered perspective on ways that Michelle and I have parented in broken ways. See, a mature family is one that chooses to repent. A a mature family is one that chooses to forgive. As we were reminded in verse 13 of chapter 3 of Colossians, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. As parents and children interact with one another, we don't hold grudges or become bitter with one another. If every Christian family is a little church, we reflect Christ in the ways we repent and forgive. And if every Christian family is a little church, every family points to Christ. Children, children choosing to obey parents, children choosing to submit to authority, fathers and mothers exercising that authority with restraint so as not to crush a child's spirit. This is the gospel of grace on display. A, a child that obeys rather than being about self is imaging a savior that lived to give glory to his heavenly father. A father that exercises his authority with restraint is imaging a God who is gentle and who is kind with his children, who does not give them what they deserve each and every time they sin, but gives them what they don't deserve, pursuing them with mercy and with grace. These instructions for how we are to live as family, they're not a legalistic framework to achieve the ideal parenting outcome. These instructions are intended to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to give glory to a savior who surrendered everything for his people, and to give glory to a God who is gentle and kind with his children. Let's give thanks for that gospel and pray that our our church would be filled with children and adults living out its implications as they relate to one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving our church so many children. While it often feels like we have more than enough, God, we ask for more. And we particularly pray for husbands and wives longing for a child. Father, we thank you for your gospel that rather than condemning us in our sin, you are kind and patient with us as your children. We thank you that we do not need to obey to earn your love. And we thank you that you delight in children that are often not worth delighting in. As we continue to pray, as we typically do, Uh, We want to individually reflect and pray to the Lord. Children, in what ways do you reject obeying your mom or dad? Parents, in what ways do you exacerbate your children? For all adults in this congregation, in what ways do you need to confess how you have not entered into relationships with parent and children? Let's take a moment to silently confess to the Lord whatever he brings to mind.
Because we transition from praying silently. We will, we will confess our sins corporately. Uh, I, know, I know we don't have the confession up on the screen. Uh, you do have access to them on, our, on, on your phones. Uh, I will also, I'll lead us uh, similar to how we did the profession, uh, where I will say a line and then we'll, we'll uh, ask you guys to respond and say it together. Here's where that confession takes us. The children of this church are gifts, but sometimes we make those gifts objects of worship. And sometimes we make other good gifts from God. We worship those good gifts and we miss our kids. We miss what it means to relate to one another in ways that are pleasing to the Lord. With that in mind, let's confess that type of sin together. Merciful God. Your word says that every good gift is from above. You are our great provider. You give us everything we need. Yet we confess that we turn these gifts into idols. That we love, serve, and worship above you. Forgive us for turning your gifts into God's. Help us to find our contentment and fulfillment in you alone. By the power of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. In light of our confession of sin, hear the good news of the gospel from Romans 5. Since we are justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. For you who trust in Jesus, know that your faith, know that through faith you are forgiven of your sins and cleansed of your shame. You have peace with God and great hope in him. Rest in these promises and be at peace. So now let us take hold of these promises and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. When we observe communion, we are remembering the love and action of our eternal Father, who rather than condemning us, rather than reject us as we have rejected him in his ways, is kind and patient with us. He sent his Son to die for us that we might be called his children. Because communion is a celebration of how God invited us into his family. If you're not a Christian and you're with us this morning, rather than come forward, we invite you to reflect. Paul is laying out a vision for what it means to submit to and exercise authority in the home. How might you have experienced that in broken ways? How might that be hindering you believing in or coming to trust a good father in heaven? As you reflect, if you want to talk to someone in this room, if you want to talk to myself or Pastor Chris, seek us out. For those who trust in a kind and patient Heavenly Father who sacrificed his only son, that you would be a son or daughter. Let me read from the Gospel of Luke. And he took bread. 
gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so church, this is the body of Christ. Jesus was separated from his father in heaven so that you would be united with him as his child. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so church, the blood of Christ has been shed for you. By his blood, we are united and made into one family. The logistics for how we do this are normally on the slide behind me. Uh, The way we do this is uh, have one member of your household uh, come forward um, and uh, gather what you need for that household and then take communion as a family, participate in communion as a a family or in a smaller group. Um, Come when you're ready.